Right. I believe we are live. We'll see. Hopefully, fingers crossed people can hear us. Um, it says they should be able to, but we'll find out in a minute, I guess. Um, someone will comment saying, we can't hear you. <laughs> but hello, everyone, to his listening. Um, thanks for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. So today I'm here with Emma Riley, uh, a, fellow, a fellow Northern Irish woman and um, a whistleblower for, well, former UN employee turned whistleblower. So, Emma, uh, thank you so much for, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. No problem. So, uh, as I mentioned before we started, when I first came across your story, watching the the clip from um, your interview with Majid Nawaz on LBC, I was stunned. I I was just blown away. Um, so, I yeah, I just wanted to get you to start with um, perhaps in your own words. Do you want to just like give sixty seconds of your story, and then we'll go you know deeper into it? Sure. Um, I mean, basically, I'm a human rights lawyer, and I got what I thought would be my dream job at the UN. And I'd been there about a year when one of my colleagues forwarded me a request from the Chinese delegation um, asking whether specific people were going to be coming and interacting with UN human rights bodies. That information is completely confidential. It's against the rules to give it to any member state. But it was decided that an exception would be made for China and that this would be kept secret. So the UN basically hands over names of dissidents and anyone China asks about to Beijing. Okay. That's, yeah, just, I know, I, like, I've, I've watched you talk about it, but it's still disturbing every time someone says it. I mean, it, it's, it, you know, because there's one half of my brain that, you know, is is thinking that, you know, the, the UN and all these big global institutions are horrendously corrupt and um, that... China has bought most of them in some way. And then there's the other part of me that wants to believe in, you know, the collaboration of nations and, you know, our, our, our fundamental commitment to human rights and justice and transparency. And yeah, it's a little disappointing to see uh, that this happened, um, to say the least. Uh, so why don't we go back and, and talk about your your background and, and how you got the job at the UN. So, so when did you realize that you wanted to start when you wanted, uh, when you realized you wanted to work in human rights, and then when did you start working for the UN? Um, after graduation, which is always helpful, uh, maths degree is not the usual way into human rights law. Um, so I basically I'd done this maths degree, and I found myself kind of, you know, knowing that I didn't want to do math for the rest of my life. Um, and I'd always been involved in voluntary work. So, you know, I'd always sort of done volunteer work with Amnesty. When I was at university, I ran a rent strike because they were planning to increase the rents by 70% in a year. Um, and yeah, I just basically wanted to do human rights. So I moved to Hong Kong actually for three years and did some volunteer work there. And at the same time did a distance learning law degree. Um, then I moved to Paris for a while because uh, in order to get the international human rights jobs, you need to speak at least two languages. Um, so I figured, you know, go to Paris, learn French, that'll be fun. Um, and then I did my master's degree and basically just went from there. I specialised in prison reform against torture. And just prior to joining the UN, I was the regional director of an NGO called Search for Common Ground in uh, North Africa during the Arab Spring, which was super interesting. And then 
In late 2011, I got a call to invite me to interview for a post at the UN. I'd not actually been applying, but um, they have a roster of sort of candidates that have previously applied for posts. So I did the interview, got the job, um, decided that I would give up my relatively sort of nice life in Morocco and move to Geneva. Um, but yeah, it was January 2012 I started and I was there for about a year when I got this email. Okay, so what? So the email basically laid out that the Chinese government were being handed names of dissidents that would be attending some sort of conference. Um, it was the email from China, actually. So the Chinese delegation phrases in favour. So it was an email from a senior Chinese diplomat to a UN bureaucrat basically saying, hey, can you do me a favour? We want to know whether these people are coming or not. Um, and then a list of names. And we'd had similar requests before. I mean, Turkey had actually asked in the previous session, they wanted to know certain people coming and were saying, you know, these are PKK members, you can't possibly let them in. And the answer was, we don't give out that information, it's confidential. Um, but it was indicated basically that an exception would be made for China. So I immediately started complaining about this um, and saying, we can't possibly even think about this. And that's when it got a bit strange because looking back on it now, they'd actually been handing over names since 2006. I just didn't know that. Um, so they put together this kind of entire force for my benefit. We even had the senior Chinese diplomat come in for a meeting and everyone else at that meeting knew that names were already being handed over and that this was already an established policy. The only person that didn't know that was me and I was the person that had been complaining about it. So the UN basically must have persuaded this Chinese diplomat to go along with this farce because if you're a diplomat and your instructions from your capital are get these names for me and you're going into a meeting and bureaucrats are indicating well we're going to stop doing this now or we might stop doing this now your automatic response says, well, you've always done it before, what's changed? That is not what he said. He gave the impression this was a first request as well. Um, so basically all of these meetings were held. There were all these back and forth by email. And then my boss sort of pretended that he was taking the decision with names to be handed to China. Um, and it was crazy because the only sort of pro-con analysis that was being done was how much of a pain it was going to be for the, the sort of diplomats and bureaucrats. I was the only person that was bringing up, well, what on earth do you think China's planning to do with this information? I mean, we know that the Chinese government uses forms of collective punishment. We know that if someone speaks out, it's their family back in China that's going to suffer. It's not about whether this individual gets into the building in Geneva. It's about what they're doing with their family back home before they come. Mm. Um, and I gave them specific examples. Uh, one of the women whose name was on China's list is a woman called Rebia Kadir. And she's a very well-known Uyghur activist. Um, and I showed them that there'd been this urgent appeal by Amnesty a few years earlier where her children were being tortured in front of each other. And then a mobile phone was handed to her daughter to call her in the US to listen to her sons being tortured live by the police and to tell her not to conduct international advocacy. Now, looking back on it, the timing of when that happened is actually coincides with the timing of one of the Human Rights Council meetings. But it's like, right, we have an example of someone's children literally being tortured 
with the express purpose of them then being handed a phone and told, don't go to this meeting. Now, what do we think China's going to do if we tell them she's coming? And the basic response was, you know, you have to trust Eric's political judgment. He's been doing this a while. And it's like, well, yeah, he might have been doing it for a while, but that's part of the problem, I think. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, fucking horrifying. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so to, yeah, so I, yeah, just a bit thrown by that. That's, that's, that's a pretty shocking to, to, to realize that that's what the Chinese government do. I mean, I'm aware of all, many, many, many horrible things that they're doing, but still, yeah. um, so the reason that the Chinese government are, are, at, so they they were like sending a list of, of what, like known Uyghur activists throughout the world. Uh, and they were like checking to see who was coming to this meeting. Is that, is that what was going on? It wasn't just Uyghurs. Uh, it was basically anyone China felt like knowing about. And it's not just well-known activists either. I mean, there's students and interns on this list. It's kind of one of the UN's frequent sponsors is, oh, well, it's only well-known people. And I'm like, well, it doesn't get more well-known than Rabia Kadir and the weaker circles and look what they did to her kids. So how does that make a difference? But um, yeah, basically anyone China feels like knowing about Tibetans, Taiwanese, Hong Kongers, um, any human rights lawyer, some academics um, who are based in China. So um, yeah, basically anyone, the Chinese government's worried about what they might say, Falun Gong. Yeah. Okay, so, so then, yeah, so the UN are handing over the names and China will be using those names to torture people within the country who are related to these activists so that they do not speak at the conference. Exactly. Or and beyond. Yeah. And I mean, you know, as I said, the UN's public story in this keeps changing, but I think the important thing to realise is there have been some internal court cases. The activists testified on my behalf against the UN. Oh, wow. Uh, the UN did not warn them. The repercussions were fairly direct. Um, they talked about their family members being contacted by the police. Um, Dolkin Issa, who is the head of the World Uyghur Congress, discussed his family members being arrested, disappeared. Um, both of his parents have now died in the concentration camps in Xinjiang. And the UN continues to publicly say it's not aware of any harm. Well, they testified the UN is perfectly aware of the harm it caused. Okay, so the UN are, are, are aware that, that, that this information is being used. So how how widely aware? Like Because like saying that they're aware, it could mean like one committee knows, but, you know, it's not like widely known. Like, like how, how, like how, how, like how, through the whole of the UN, basically, I'm trying to ask, like, how, how sort of an open secret is this? How much of an open secret is this? And and sort of, is this just considered to be like, well, that's the way of it? They know. Um, one of the arguments the UN lawyers used in court, actually, it, I mean, there was part of me that was sitting there thinking, I mean, they know I'm a lawyer, right? They know I knew this being recorded. Do they think I believe in their internal justice system or do they think I want the tape recordings? Um, so their lawyer basically kept saying, everyone knows. The argument of the UN in court is that I must be some kind of idiot to think handing names to China could ever be a problem. Uh, because I told all of these senior managers and they all know and they've all known since 2013. So effectively, why won't I shut up? Uh, I'm, they, they keep saying, we seem to be the only person that has a problem with this. So why do you keep having a problem with 
it. And I'm like, again, the activists who are testifying on my behalf. Um, that's why I have a problem. Any, any random five-year-old knows that this is a bad idea. Uh, the UN senior managers don't. And I'm absolutely aware that the UN Secretary General himself knows that I'm telling the truth because he admitted that when I met him. Okay. So when you first sort of came out and, and, and we're just saying, okay, so I think that, that we are being complicit in genocide. We're handing these names over to the Chinese and they are using it to torture people's families or just straight up kill them. What was the reaction amongst maybe like, uh, like in the UN and in the wider world? Like what did um, people say to this? In the wider world, everyone was rightly shocked. Um, within the UN, obviously, my sort of, you know, my colleagues that I'm actually friends with were sort of aware of the situation and know, had known for years that I was the one that was sort of speaking out about it. But my other colleagues, their reactions were fairly shocking. Um, basically, nobody wanted to know. And all of the managers that I went to effectively just didn't want to know the truth. So they tried to present it as some kind of he said, she said situation. But I went, you know, I'm saying what I'm saying with all of the evidence, physical emails <laughs> so, you know, that I can show were sent to the Chinese delegation, uh, lists of people's names who were harmed by this. Um, and they basically didn't want to know because everyone knows what happens to whistleblowers to the UN and nobody wants to be one. So their idea was basically, it's fine. Even if we, I disagree with this policy, she's got it. She can speak out in her corner alone. We'll do nothing to support her. And if we just sit here quietly, we can keep our nice pay and benefits. Um, others were more explicit. So a woman whose job it is to literally integrate human rights into other UN agencies told me that I should have known that China was paymaster. It's a job like any other. And why am I talking about this? Right. So she, like, she, flat, she straight up said China's the paymaster. Yeah. Like those were her words. Like she, like yes. this. I was surprised that a Swiss person would know the word paymaster. Well, uh, that's not the part that's surprising me. Yeah, I mean. but, but that's why I remember that that was her word. <laughs> right. So you, you mentioned there that everyone knows what happens to whistleblowers at the UN. What mm. does happen to whistleblowers at the UN? The, like they get fired. They get fired. Okay. Um, usually, it happens much faster than it did for me. Um, the thing I keep sort of pointing out to people is, you know, it, it is a, a very difficult story, like I said, to believe because you want to think that the UN is good, and you especially want to think that the part of the UN that's literally called the Human Rights Office might be slightly better than the rest. Um, my contract was renewed four times during this. Um, they could have got, they could have basically let my contract expire at any point. They kept renewing me. Um, I think that's a fairly clear indicator that I am telling the truth. Um, and that you're probably quite and, good at your job. Yeah, that as well. Um, but basically, whistleblowers are fired, whatever you're reporting. So just to give an example, um, a guy called Anders Compass, who worked in the same office as me, um, and he reported that French peacekeepers were raping children as young as eight. And, and basically, there's a requirement that, you know, an eight-year-old boy give a French soldier a blue job in order to get his food ration. Uh, yeah, you'd have thought, you know, because, okay, I'm reporting a policy. But he was reporting something that was very clearly an act of misconduct. Nobody thinks child rape is UN policy. Even then... The UN basically pushed him out of the organization. 
And years later, he was one of the very few whistleblowers that managed to get an independent review of his case. It was through a woman who blew the whistle on his treatment and on the child sex abuse called Miranda Brown, who's been very helpful in my case as well and kind of advising me how to do this. Um, but years later, after he was exonerated, this spokesperson of the UN Human Rights Office was still sending emails to journalists calling him shitty, duplicitous, in bed with the French, the worst colleague I'd ever had, etc. The guy's only crime was to think that child rape might be a problem. And he was pushed out. The rule is this kind of complete omerta idea that you cannot say anything. And as soon as you speak up against the UN, it's seen as you're somehow against the entire structure, that you want to bring the whole thing down. Um, but I mean, in my case, what's really crazy is usually they accuse whistleblowers of something else. Mm. So, you know, for men, it's usually some kind of sexual misconduct. They'll accuse you of some unrelated misconduct and then convince everybody that that's why you've been fired. In my case, they sort of forgot to do that. I was fired for basically three offences. The first one was trying to convince member states to change a policy decided by the Secretary General. Yeah, indeed I did. Yeah. But you see how they yeah. admit the yeah, policy? Sorry, conducting uh, politics? Like <laughs> yeah. I sort of, yeah, I, I did want them to stop handing names to China, and given that that's the policy, then yeah, I was trying to change that, you know, guilty as charged. Okay. Um, revealing publicly things that were known to me by virtue of my, my functions that weren't public, which is funny because in, the, in court, the UN says everyone knows about this policy and it's no problem. Um, and yeah, I mean, basically, yeah. Right. And disobeying an order to be quiet. Well, obviously they always work, you know. Everyone, yeah, that, everyone that's told to shut up always does, you know. Yeah, thankfully. Well, not. even they do actually. It's wow. a very, very cushy number, and yeah. people want. To oh yeah. Okay. Um, I was very junior, um, like kind of one level up from the bottom of the UN, and my take-home pay after pay after tax was about eighty thousand pounds a year. Oh, that's not bad. I mean. People do want to stay for that. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, if someone was going to spoil my 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 day by accusing me of something as, you know, they were going to spoil my nice job by accusing me of something as as trivial as like being complicit in you know child rape or genocide, I'd I'd stick out for the benefits. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, one would hope that the UN attracted different people, but unfortunately, it's also incredibly corrupt in statistics. Yeah, I mean. Oh. This is this is a very good example, right? So um, I can't, I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do this. I'm going to do it anyway. I'm reading this book called Corruptible at the minute. Um, and it says, uncorrected John Murray proof, not for resale, quotation or distribution, but you know, here we go. Uh, <laughs> I'm not your lawyer. I do not. <laughs> Look, um, Brian, I'm sorry. Uh, I will be interviewing you in January and I, am sh I will apologize profusely if it's a problem. But I'm just trying to sell your book because I think it's wonderful. Basically, it's about... Um, it's about whether power corrupts or whether corrupt people end up in power. And it's like obviously an age-old question, but he's approaching it in a really fun way. Um, and essentially, where's the quote I'm looking for? Uh, he said, The overwhelming majority of people don't knowingly make decisions that ruin lives or snuff them out. Instead, we deflect such decisions to others. We elect or appoint or hire people to make unbearable choices that we couldn't face. And in turn, the people we delegate authority to 
to are sometimes thrust into situations in which all options are immoral. No matter what they could have done, it could have das- uh, disastrous consequences. This is not to absolve, condone, or normalize grotesque, a- uh, grotesque acts of abuse and violence by those in power. Quite the contrary, political, meter- political leaders must be held accountable for any human rights abuses they authorize or enable. And like uh, the the whole book is is beautifully written like that. It's it's just him exploring the extent to which like we don't realize the world is a fucked up place, but that you know the the people that end up there quite often go seeking power and then find it and become more and more corrupt like it's it's this this thing that power corrupts but it also attracts the worst people i think it's even there's an extra element to that in the un as well because the power he was saying about sort of holding people accountable when every single person has diplomatic immunity how do you do that Mm. and that's the problem there's no transparency in the un there's no oversight i basically have reported crimes committed by my employer against me to national courts and been told that if it were anyone but the UN, yeah, I would investigate this. Um, and it was one of the ironies is that part of my job was working on rule of law. So I was working on issues like counterterrorism and the death penalty and all of these different things. But basically every single thing that I was advocating for externally about increasing transparency, having independent oversight mechanisms where you have kind of judges with fixed terms <laughs> who you cannot be removed by anyone who they're, whose actions they're looking at. All of that stuff doesn't exist in the UN. So everything the UN advocates for elsewhere to try to hold power to account doesn't exist internally. Internally, it's a complete autocratic system. Whoever has the power can use that however they want. Well, that's slightly disturbing. So let's go back to to China and um, this description that the that your colleague had said was uh, they were the paymasters. So from what you've witnessed, to what extent are China heavily influential at the UN? Extremely. Um, There's a sort of myth, and it's a myth that is common among diplomats even of democracies, that the independence of the UN is something vital and that they can't get involved. So the way they used to phrase it is they can't get involved in my case because it's an employment issue. And I'm like, handing a to China is definitely not an employment issue. I've never been asking them to see if my job, I always knew I'd be fired. Um, took them a while, but you know, I knew where we were heading. Um, but they just phrase it always as an, as an internal issue. We can't possibly get involved. The independence of the Office of the High Commissioner of Human Rights is deeply important. That's true only insofar as you have someone that cares about human rights in post and they should be allowed to criticize any government. It's not true as regards kind of obeying internal employment rules, where you should be exercising some kind of due diligence on how your money's spent. But that's how the democracies approach it. Now, the diplomats that you see most often in the corridors of the parts of the UN where the bureaucrats work that are not open to the public are China, (laughs) Russia. (laughs) You know, this is a sort of myth that is obeyed by democracies, but it is not obeyed by the other side. So on a daily basis, the bureaucrats are faced with very angry delegations shouting and screaming at them about what they want that have to report back to totalitarian regimes and capital and maybe punish they don't achieve their aims versus utter silence on the other side. 
So the idea that the UN is somehow kind of completely neutral and that everyone is existing on this wonderful plane of utter moral goodness and complete neutrality. I mean, if you're going into work every day and a Chinese delegate is there harassing you to do something and there's nobody on the other side saying don't, you know, it does take some will to stand up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, you know, pe people tend to care to whoever's around them. Um yeah generally especially if it's at your work and you're being pushed and pushed and pushed and there's you're not going to get you're not going to get any reward for saying no i believe in human rights like that's, that, that's exactly. and, and it's probably quite a substantial one if you do it so you know <laughs> yeah so like are, so the chinese diplomats and the russian diplomats um and sort of yeah authoritarian regimes diplomats tend to have very loud voices then at the UN you're saying yeah. so when when this when the, the when your colleague had described them as the paymasters is there is there like financial mechanisms by which they are exercising some sort of control or is that just sort of like well China owns the world sort of like blase talk combination of both I mean there's a lot of the stuff that is sort of con the conditionalities and the money that China gives to issues like development aren't public knowledge but you know China's one of the main development donors um you've got things like small island developing states and least developed countries which tend to be quite small quite dependent on UN and external funds generally and the rule there that China imposes is that no money donated to China can ever be used in any country that has diplomatic relations with Taiwan so you see a lot of smaller islands that previously had those diplomatic relations cutting them and replacing them with diplomatic relations with China there's also a few funds that have been set up um, that to me would certainly seem to require a little more oversight. Um, there's something called the UN Peace and Development Trust Fund, which is basically the Secretary General's pet projects. And that trust fund is funded by a single donor, China. And the where the money goes is jointly decided by China and the Secretary General. And it's about $20 million a year. So, yeah, I think we're probably, you know, when Antonio Guterres is quite so silent about an ongoing genocide, given that the UN was set up to respond to one of the last ones, um, I certainly do find that concerning. When you have a high commissioner for human rights who used to be the president of Chile, and while she was president of Chile, she was the Latin American lead on the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, so you've got this person who's now been appointed High Commissioner for Human Rights. And, you know, her personal story is tragic, but being tortured isn't actually a qualification to work in human rights. Um, yeah. It's, you know, it, it's, 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 I, I'm not denying someone's victimhood, but it's just that it doesn't actually then make you into a human rights lawyer. Mm. Um, and the idea that, you know, it's sort of like, the French royalty used to sort of strip their queens at the border and replace all their clothes with French clothes and you suddenly became French at that moment. The idea that she sort of walked into the office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights and suddenly forgot all of this baggage when she still has national political ambitions and national sort of philanthropic foundation, all of that kind of stuff, that is a bit ridiculous and a bit much. Um, you know, as I said, I agree with the idea that the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights should be independent, that it should also have people at its head who are credible in the rule. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems like there's just 
on all fronts there's like a bastardization of of almost i mean this this goes across basically every institution i think that was created or 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 restored or renewed in the wake of the second world war like they're all completely working in opposition to the thing they're meant to uphold and the yeah. thing that it's it's yeah it's disturbing time to be growing up um the yeah but i mean the thing is it's not you know it's not like we don't know how to repair that like i said the un paid me money to go and tell other governments what to do in such situations and sort of you know what how to create a system how to reduce instances of torture in prison systems you know we do know how to do these things as oversight accountability transparency um you know some kind of consequence because you know, I'm sorry, no institution should be saying, well, every employee that we have has diplomatic immunity, so you can't charge this person with child rape. Excuse me? When was that part of our functions? It's supposed to be functional immunity. And it's it's helpful. You know, if you're if you're wandering around in a totalitarian state and you're getting death threats because you're helping a particular prisoner, it's helpful that the state can't then arrest you on a traffic charge. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, it's that kind of, you know, it, that's what it's supposed to be there for. It's not supposed to be there to cover actual criminal actions. What can we do about that? Like, what? how do we stop? Um, I'm trying to basically go at the UN through the only thing they understand, which is money. Uh, China's a UPay master, great. There's quite a few other countries that donate lots of money to the UN. And when China does it, it's earmarked. When other countries do it, it's not. So just actually a couple of hours before we got online, um, the T-shirts asked some questions about me. Um, so I, I am looking forward to his call. Um, and basically it's about going to the member states that give money to the UN because they are accountable. All of this money is taxpayer money. It might seem several levels removed, mm. but it's coming from the member states. It's coming from global taxpayers. Mm. The countries that give most to the UN are the democracies. Um, so the US government... And we have the example, least influence over it. That's fucking pissy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's kind of annoying, but I mean, the US is like finally putting back in some of the protections that they stripped out of their laws. So... There's this provision in US law that says that if a UN agency isn't respecting best practices and whistleblower protection, the US is required by Congress to withhold 10% of its donations to that body. I work for the UN Secretariat, so it's about $400 million a year. That's not an insignificant amount of money. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I'm completely transparent. Mm. I can show they're not respecting best practices and support protection. Mm. Now, I'd rather not have to do that. I'd rather that we had a UN where when you blow the whistle and something is so blatantly wrong, they actually act to stop it. But given that nobody's done anything to stop it, fine. If that's, if that's literally all that the UN senior manager care about is the money. I didn't even put it in the document firing me. It was one of my charges was that I tried to persuade member states to change a policy of secretary general, including by threatening the cash. <laughs> so, you know, right. That's clearly how to get them then. Yeah. I mean, that, that suggests that they, they will not enjoy that when you, uh, if you can, can, you know, 
hit them where it hurts. I mean, people people tend to get very mad as soon as you start touching their wallets. Um, you know, they'll put up with a lot, and I mean a lot. As soon as they're well, they're suffering financially, yeah. I mean, like to be honest, I I so I had um, Doctor Erkin Siddick on the show um, last year, or was it last year? It was the start of this year, but uh, yeah, a few a, a while back, and and we were we we talked through the 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 a lot of the details of of what's going on, and and like my 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 reaction is just. I thought we said never again. Like, yeah. it's like, it's, I can't, you know, all of the values that we decided were really important after the Second World War, mm. like, I actually fucking think they're important. And it yeah. really, really, really just both makes me angry and terrified that the world doesn't mm. see that. And that's what it feels like sometimes. Yeah. I think people do. I mean, as I said, the the react the public reaction versus the reaction of my colleagues were so wildly different. You know, I keep being told internally that, you know, I'm somehow mentally deficient to think this could possibly be a problem. And that I just don't get how the UN works and how international politics works. And I'm like, oh, I see how it works. It just is not <laughs> working for the sort of good of the peoples. And you know, the charter starts with me, the peoples of the United Nations. We're not supposed to just be there to serve the governments, especially in human rights. I mean, human rights is set up in a way where it can only be used against a government. The only sort of group of people that can breach your human rights is the government. The idea that we should be sitting there in the UN Human Rights Office trying to please every government in the world is a bit ridiculous. Um, But yeah, I think there is a general belief among people that the UN should be living up to its values and that these are important. The problem is internally, um, like I said, it's a very cushy number. People are sort of, you're not allowed to hire your own children. So what happens is the head of one UN agency will hire the children of another one and they'll sort of cross fertilize that way. (laughs) Every recruitment is sewn up in advance. Every single one, it's ridiculous. Even my own, the way I got into the UN, it was an accident. I wasn't the intended candidate, but um, they'd gone a bit too far even for the UN and they'd said that out of 30,000 applicants, only this one man was qualified. So the then high commissioner sent it back down and said, seriously, 30,000 applicants, you find one that's capable of doing the job? Like, give me a few options here. So they called in a few more people for interview, called in eight of us, recommended me as a second choice. And she got it back up and said, oh, oh you're kidding me. I'm reversing the order here. <laughs> so that's basically how I got in. Well, but otherwise, my recruitment, like every other recruitment, would have been sewn up in advance for somebody's friend. And that means you have a group of people who are loyal to the individual who got them their cushy job and not to the principles of the organization. The only thing I think that links the whistleblowers is we are all the sort of unicorns that were effectively applied online (laughs) correctly and got a job at the UN at the end of it. Um, And when you come in from the outside and you see what it's like, it's very hard essentially not to blow the whistle. Yeah, I can. Yeah, I, I, yeah, much respect to you for doing it. Um, it still takes courage, you know. Um, so literally, my job. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's my job is literally human rights officer. I, I don't think complicity in genocide. No, it's not a good look, really. Um, but I mean, 
I witness a lot of people who who perform the complete antithesis to the the function of their job. Um, the press, for example, are meant to be you know denizens of truth and seekers of fact, and you know the ones willing to challenge the powerful. But you know, do, do they fuck? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the uh, let's go back actually for a sec, and and because we've we've said. Um, We've, we've accused the UN of being complicit in genocide here quite a few times without actually explaining what is happening in China. Like, I, I assume that quite a few of the people who are watching this um, are already aware, um, at least to some extent, that there is uh, quite, there's some quite serious allegations that the, the Chinese government are attempting to exterminate the, the Uyghur people. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, do you, want, do you want to sort of lay out what's, what's, what's happening? Sure. Um, I mean, basically, one thing to say, first of all, is I think there's an often a, a sort of misapprehension as to how gen the word genocide is used in international law. It doesn't mean that you have to kill the people now. So a lot of what the Chinese government is doing is forcible sterilization. There's been a plummeting um, birth rate among the Uyghur population. Mm -hmm. They're putting large chunks of the population into concentration camps, um, forced labor. They're transferring them across China. So you basically have a lot of products made through slave labor. Uh, avoid cotton, avoid tomatoes, <laughs> unless you know exactly where they're coming from. Um, so you've got this system of forced sterilization, um, sexual violence just of the most horrific na nature um, against women in the camps torture um of basically everybody there's also um the kind of one of the component parts of genocide is sort of inflicting conditions of life am amongst the people that are untenable so the people that aren't physically in the camps themselves have relatives who are and they don't know where they are, they don't know how they're being treated, they don't know what's happening to them, but they see the reports about what that's probably like. Um, it's used as a method of trying to silence the diaspora as well. Um, it's very difficult for people to speak out because they know that their family members are subject to worse treatment. So those that do are incredibly brave and just utterly heartbreaking decisions, which is again, given that those are the very people whose names are being handed over by the UN, it's what makes this so horrific. Um, a lot of the places um, that are culturally important, particularly the mosques, have been converted into things like public toilets. Mm. Um, so there are certainly basically all the component parts of genocide potentially without the deliberate killing of sort of sufficient number of people for that criterion to be met, but all the others are. Um, there's an issue around intentionality as well. When you commit a crime, it's sort of there's two aspects. There's kind of did the act occur and were you in the state of mind to commit that um, for what genocide? It? Mens rea and actus reus. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, wow, a lawyer. Um, so basically you have to have the intention of destroying the group. Now, a lot of those aspects speak for itself. If you're sterilizing one group and not another, it's very obvious that you're trying to kill that group off within a generation. Um, but there's a lot of documentation that's relatively recently come to light that supports that, um, showing it's been plotted at the highest level. Um, some speeches by Xi Jinping himself around ensuring that the Uyghur population in the region is diluted, ensuring that their culture is destroyed. Um, there's a Uyghur tribunal that was set up because none of the governments are responding to this due to economic interests. 
Um, there was a weaker tribunal set up in London that should come to its decision soon, but I have difficulty as a lawyer seeing how it can be anything other than genocide. Mm. Um, well, where where are the documents that came to light recently? Just um, because I spoke yeah. to, there's like there's because there's a, a school of thought that goes that that all of this is being hammed up by the CIA in order to justify invading China, and I've seen it I've seen it said by both people who I have zero respect for and people who normally are right on a lot of things, and I'm like, hmm, hmm. It makes me consider it. So if there's more stuff to look at, I'd love that. Yeah, I could send. There it is. It's all in Chinese, though, so I don't know how your Chinese is. Um, ah, it's not yet yeah, non-existent. <laughs> yeah, not that great. Um, but um, it, it was leaked to a German academic who has come in for a lot of sort of targeting by the Chinese regime called the Adrian Sense. Um, in order to protect the identity of the whistleblower, they've not put everything out there, but. Um, what is out there is fairly damning in terms of the intent to an extent that the tribunal actually had another session, I think it's last week, when these documents came to light, just so that they would have that evidence on the file to be able to consider it. Um, but yeah, it's, um, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's been a single kind of major attack against any ethnic group without someone saying CIA is behind it. Um, <laughs> My sort of experience working in a lot of these kind of government agencies and stuff, well, intergovernmental in my case, but is that, I don't know, keeping conspiracies like that secret requires a certain level of competence that I have yet to see. It's kind of, you know, my, my, my attitude to conspiracy theories is always that, well, have you worked in any of these institutions? Because, you know, none of us have any difficulty when we're working in kind of, countries of the global south and we're only there for a short period of time in identifying precisely which of the u.s employees at the embassy or the cia so you know i i i don't think there is yeah i mean i, I don't see what their interest would be in doing it i'm not quite clear what that would be um well but, i mean the, 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 certainly, you know. the theory goes <laughs> that it would be war with china um but if anything the current regime is uh less sort of aggravating to China they're more they're more happy to try and get on with China than than say perhaps Donald Trump's regime was and they were yeah so to me it doesn't really make much sense but um I yeah like I said I just I was curious to to, to ask <laughs> um <laughs> I, I I I after I spoke to to Erkin Siddick um who's uh, who works for NASA actually he's from he's from Xinjiang and um watching how heartbroken he was when he was talking about students from his village that are, he's no idea where they are, like thousands of them. And he went, he went to a university to lecture and he told me that there's uh, two to 3000 students who just no idea where they are. It's like, and that's like the, yeah. throughout the region. And that's that. that I mean, this, yeah. It's chilling. This is something that China does with minorities as well. I mean, you know, this isn't the first case in a sense, like um, the, the idea of introducing the majority population, kind of the essentially idea of watering down the population, et cetera. I mean, they're taking a lot of what was applied into that, making it a bit stronger. Um, one of the guys that was in charge of the Xinjiang region was, region was previously in charge of Tibet. So, um, you know, this is a pattern of treatment that, and, you know, they're basically, we got away with it that time. The, you know, Tibet 
is now majority Han Chinese. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, so what do you think it is that that stops the international community doing something about stuff like this? Because like you've said, it's not the first time. Mm. And there seems to be sufficient evidence to warrant at least at least someone going in and being like, hi, hang on a second. Like, let's take a look around here, you know? Um, and, and yet there's nothing. And the, it was the, the, for me, the, the same thing happened, um, with the, this, the, the COVID lab leak theory It's like, I don't know if it's true. seems like it, there's a chance, like, let's go look like, <laughs> but I get, but there's no, there's no desire on the part of the international community to blame China for anything like what do you think the motivating factor is there i think there's a combination of two things the first is economics um you know this there's a lot of countries in debt bondage effectively to china i mean they recently took over uganda's airport that kind of thing um so i mean you've got this sort of a lot of countries that and you know un is one country one vote um so there's a lot of countries that really can't afford to contradict china and you see their votes changing sometimes after they've been approached by Chinese delegates and sort of reminded about who's building their motorway. Um, so part of it is that um, the, the dependence as a manufacturing hub of a lot of the democracies. And I think the other part is this sort of fiction that somehow quiet diplomacy is the way. And China's very good at convincing people that, you know, it's going to obey this commitment instead of this one. You know, there, there was no coincidence in the moment I was fired, sort of hitting during the COP conference. Mm. Um, you know, we're going to just believe that this time when it's a non-binding commitment, China really needs that. So in order to get that agreement, which is very important to the lives of you know, our children and grandchildren, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. in order to get that, we're going to what, give them a free genocide. Um, and it's that kind of quid pro quo attitude that you know it's it's not a group that has a huge amount of international visibility and support um because when people were talking speaking out i mean i first reported this in 2013 it's been going on since 2006 you know there wasn't much discussion about what was happening in xinjiang in 2006 but china was still going after people's families if they tried to speak out at all so there's this kind of real effort to not mention it, to look the other way. Um, you know, the the attitude of the IOC, this fiction of sort of quiet diplomacy that's meant to be happening behind closed doors. If asked about why she's not insisting on getting access to Xinjiang, the High Commissioner for Human Rights will tell you about all this quiet diplomacy that's happening behind closed doors. I can see her correspondence with China. It basically consists of, thank you for continuing to agree to not ever meet with any Uyghurs. Um, so, yeah, I think there's, you know, Secretary General says the same when he's challenged and cornered on the issue, he's doing some kind of quiet diplomacy. Mm. It's very, very quiet. <laughs> so, the, so essentially they're, they're all just either literally physically on the hook to China for some sort of debt or, um, infrastructure project that they're building, or they don't want to rock the boat because China makes all our stuff. Basically. Yeah. Right. 
And it's that kind of thing where, you know, there was, there's been this bit of a shift where, you know, one of the major things on which governments are judged is the GDP and that kind of stuff. And, you know, you saw the, the attitude that China took when Australia started to stand up was for cutting all imports. You know, there was this big campaign at one point about, you know, drink Australian wine will be helping with your cause. Um, and yeah, it's that kind of thing where there's an incredible power relationship there between China and most of the countries in the world. And they use that. Mm. Like what you're saying, who holds power to account? I mean, it's among governments, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, that's, a, that's technically what the UN is for. And then we find out that it's not doing that in any way, shape or form is, is quite disturbing. Um, it, like, with the, I, I, I always think whenever anyone mentions this, it's like, look, like, could we not survive? Like, we'd be fine, surely, for six months if we just stopped trading with China. But China would be screwed. Like, like, if, like surely we could manage six months with no, like, new phones <laughs> new laptops and like, we could move the manufacturing um yeah, there's mean... actually a requirement that you use the slave labor <laughs> um you know it's it's kind of yeah my, my partner went out and brought us more masks earlier and there were two china. sets of masks in the pharmacy and one of them was made in china and the one the other one was made in france was three times more expensive but we bought the one that was made in france um and that's a luxury that we have i realize that's not something everyone has but you know you can boycott the Mujis and Uniqlo's of the world. You can decide to check, like I said, it's uh, cotton and tomatoes are the two to look out for, but you can check where those are actually coming from, not just where they're sort of processed last. Um, but yeah, there's, yeah, things can move. Hmm. Um, and I think, I don't think basically any product that's currently made in China, given that the Uyghur population that's being subjected to forced labor is being moved around the country. There's no possibility of anyone saying that their supply chain is free of slave labor if they're manufacturing anything in China. So it's actually kind of already illegal to be still trading with them. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, I mean not, not <laughs> I guess the, it always with the money. <laughs> yeah. I mean, could you take, could you take, everyone to the ICC and be like, you can't trade with these people because of slavery? Um, like, or would certainly that... when they were adopting the Rome Statute, um, there was a lot of discussion about whether or not company representatives could ever be taken to the ICC and whether you would ever have the mens rea. Like, would, would you be able to show the kind of intention? But for some of the things, it's kind of, you know, negligence is enough. Um, there's a movement towards um, having sort of supply chains free of slave labor in the EU. Um, that was led by Raphael Guxman in the European Parliament. Um, so the commission is now meant to be putting together the law that will put that into European law. Mm. And once it's in European law, then companies can be held liable, including criminal liability. Um, there have been some efforts in various countries. I live in France now, and there's been some stuff done here around charging companies with how things are produced um but yeah i mean basically there's also the you know do you really want to be associated with slave labor and with an ongoing genocide mm -hmm. um you know the sort of child's work was largely done away with because of 
initiative started in the global north. So, you know, we have some precedents, South Africa, the anti-apartheid movement. There's stuff that can be done at the kind of consumer level, but that's no substitute for government action. No, no, because we could boycott one company and another one might just pop up that says, hey, it was, we're totally not making things in China. No, don't be silly. No. And then just lie. Like, you know, you know it's... Yeah, like I said, it's why you have to check, you know, where your tomatoes actually come from. Because a lot of the ones imported to Italy are from China. Yeah. And they get to say, you know, processed in Italy on the packet. Mm, yeah. And no mention of that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, someone pointed out to me, um, that was just I just didn't know the amount of like, yeah. The amount of Chinese-owned factories that are in Italy is 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 quite staggering. I was not aware. Um, just yeah, I just had no idea. I wasn't aware that was the thing. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, no. I mean, it's yeah, it's 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 been a big issue as well around kind of the role of the EU in you know bailing out some of the EU economies, and if mm. they don't, what happens next? Mm. Well, we're gonna see. Fireworks are only getting going on that front, but um, I'm not, not going to go there. Um, so the the last thing I I, I was I kind of wanted to ask you about was this incident with the Swiss police. Um, so so yeah, do you just want to tell people what happened and then I'll, I'll ask about it? Sure. Well, um, the the UN, shockingly enough, in its glory, has not had a single meeting about the situation in Xinjiang. In the entire time that I've been reporting this, of course, so for eight and a half years, but there was one that was organized in member states. And it was the US, the UK, and Germany or organized a meeting to discuss the weaker situation at the UN in New York. Um, but it's during COVID time, so I registered to participate remotely. So the meeting started at 3 p.m. European time. And at 3.05 p.m., uh, this armed Swiss police were at my door. They had been sent by the UN. Apparently, I was an imminent danger to myself and others, which was certainly news to me and also to my partner who was working from home. So he's on the phone with his boss, <laughs> suddenly his police at the door, which is always helpful. Um, and yeah, they'd basically been sent to make sure that there was no possibility of me speaking at that meeting, because obviously, eventually, I persuaded them that this was not true. But, you know, if you're like a national city cop and you get a call saying the UN says this woman's a danger... Um, they omitted to mention things like that I was an employee, um, that I was also a diplomat, so they're not technically meant to kind of come to my home like that. Um, they just, you know, they forgot to mention that, you know, I also have a treating doctor that they could have checked out whether this information was likely to be true. Um, so, yeah, basically they sent armed cops to make sure that I couldn't speak in that meeting and couldn't talk about what the UN was doing and the fact that they're giving names of any dissidents that want to speak out to directly to the Chinese government so that they can intimidate the families. So like, what did they do? Did they just phone the police and go, go check this woman? Or yeah. like, does yeah, that work? Literally. Like, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I mean, again, like, that's the thing that really impressed the police. I don't think they'd done anything like the due diligence they would have done if that had come from a random Swiss citizen, but it comes from the United Nations. And like you said, people want to believe the UN is good and true and tells the truth um, and wouldn't send armed police to intimidate an employee. Uh, but that's unfortunately not the reality. Yeah. Yeah. No, the thing that, that like, it really, uh, it struck me because this, right, this is going to seem unrelated, but mm -hmm. there has been a spin.